You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Graham Ashton, business journalist for the Esports Observer and host of the Esports Observer podcast. Graham, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Thanks for inviting me on. Glad to be here. I'd like to start off by giving our listeners an idea of the full scope of the esports industry. This year, more than 450 million people will watch esports events, up 15% from 2018, and the industry is set to generate more than a billion dollars in revenue for the first time. What do you see as the primary drivers of this growth? Ideally, it's still the the particular age and engagement of the audience. If you speak to anyone, particularly those professionals that are coming into the industry for the first time, they will always cite the huge passion, the huge um, engagement of the audience. I heard this quote once saying that um, it's unlike traditional sports, you you have more players than you do spectators. When you're at a, an esports event, whether it's um, League of Legends, uh, Overwatch, Dota, almost everyone in that audience plays that game at home. And that's not necessarily something you can say for a lot of traditional sports. And that just means that there's a greater awareness of the complexity of the game. Uh, there's a huge attachment to the players that are on stage and the skill level that they've been able to reach. But it also it's a bit of a dual-edged sword, though, because it means any outsider attempting to come into this community or communities that are built has to earn the trust of that audience. And, and of course, I'm talking here about the sponsors, the brands, maybe any uh, outside production company that decides it wants to have a stab at esports. You you can't simply replicate what sports has done and hope that esports will will work with that. You know, the, the, obviously, the huge thing still driving revenue is the sponsorship dollars because the the meteorite sales that would drive traditional sports simply haven't matured yet because the audience, being so young and digitally driven, don't watch so much TV, which is of course. You know, the, the ad value for that is astronomically higher than what you can generate with Twitch or YouTube. So sponsors is where all that money's coming through. But I, I can tell you as someone who's been to, um, you know, plenty of events over the last half a decade, uh, I've seen sponsorship activations. I've seen brands that completely fell over their face trying to impress that audience because they didn't understand them. And then I've seen some of brands that actually hit the nail on the mark and have been able to have a long and fruitful set of partnerships within the industry because they were properly welcomed in and showcased before the fans in a, in a way that the fans can... I mean, I've been to events where fans are literally cheering the name of this particular brand that managed to win them over. And that's all because of authenticity, right? The brands are engaging with the esports audience in a meaningful way, showing that they understand the space and not just trying to you know, bluff their way in or spend a lot of money to try and gain eyeballs. It's really about building loyalty and uh, allying yourself alongside the esports community. That's precisely it. I mean, if you are a non-endemic brand and you show an advert uh, commercial at, at an esports event, that's pretty much what you would show anywhere. You'll be fine. Like, it's not like fans will get annoyed that there's commercials in their games. There's nothing like that. 
But if you're able to do a commercial that actually, you know, gets to the core of what they like about gaming, why they come to these events, you'll win that affinity that brought you here in the first place. And, and this goes to the extra level, of course, when you have live events where there are, for example, expo floors or any chance for a live activation. If you have um, something that just obviously entertains them or uh, gives them some kind of memory or you know free giveaway or whatever when they leave, um, they'll remember your brand. And that can be done either through the part of, you know, let's say an agency that really understands this audience, or as, as has been my experience, the, you know, every brand that is successfully like won over the esports audience it has someone in a strategic position who is a gamer themselves that has grown up in the space that has, you know, obviously got good business acumen behind them, but has nonetheless, they understand the audience they're talking to. And let's talk about your personal experience. What initially attracted you to the esports space? Sure. I've worked before as a music and film journalist, but like a lot of journalists, uh, I kind of pivoted towards content marketing because it's, it's sometimes it's just an easier way to scratch a living. But it was probably about f- uh, four years ago that I saw that esports journalism was actually a very healthy career option right now. I don't hide the fact that there are people who've been in this industry a lot longer than me. Nevertheless, I started you know writing about a couple of games, uh, you know following them, do kind of play by play pieces. I started to find the the business side of it far more attractive as a as, as a writing topic. I was one of the first games I really got into was Hearthstone. And there was a point in which a lot of Hearthstone teams were dropping their rosters, like literally shutting down. And that I found really interesting because once you get over that question of how is it someone can be paid to play a game for a living, you have the much more interesting question of, well, okay, but how do the people paying them actually make money? And that's when I started to dive much deeper into the ecosystem and to really understand that audience a bit better, to understand where the money flows were coming from. And this was probably, you know, this was in about, 2015-16. So this is, you know, before the point when traditional sports teams were getting in, you know, huge traditional media companies and, and large-scale investors were getting in. So this is the point where it was growing from grassroots to what we have now, which is kind of this mix of the oh, kind of OG esports crowd and these kind of outside investors that have come in. In my role with the Esports Observer, I also uh, have a particular topic of interest, and it's something I, I hope to continue writing about this year a bit more, is um, the intersection between politics and esports. Right now, you know, esports is starting to take the notice of um, elected officials because it's a huge tourism driver. If you have an international event, it's bringing a lot of jobs into your city if, if you're able to host events regularly and, and have an esports company based in your city. And um, it's a great way for a, you know, a government to engage um, a younger electorate, you know, in the same way that brands are kind of trying to get this young millennial group. Of course, politicians are the same way. And so you're starting to see more governments put aside some funding for esports-based projects. You're seeing some politicians who are, in fact, gamers themselves kind of be a bit more vocal about that. And uh, where this starts to come in, you'll also start to see the role politics will play in esports itself. Because, of course, if esports wants to scale, and it wants to hold, um, you know, it wants to obviously give its athletes all the rights they deserve, whether it's to do with, you know, uh, easy travel or, um, you know, maybe tax exemptions. If it's like a youth-based club, they'll need to work with the government on that. And the only way that will work is if the government first understands esports and can be convinced of its merits. So that, that's a, that, that topic, like um, we could, I'm, at some point, I would love to fill a whole show of my own podcast on that. Because there's so many strange and interesting projects in terms of what governments are spending their money on when it comes to esports. 
I'll give you one really good example is um, in Malaysia right now, their minister for uh, youth and sport, Syed Sadiq, and he's about uh, 27. So he's the youngest elected official in Malaysia's history, I believe, but also he's a Dota 2 player. And naturally, since he has been elected, there's been a lot of push from Malaysia into esports programs. I mean, they put aside, I think it was around the equivalent of uh, 4 million US dollars into esports, uh, which was later matched by Razor's CEO because he thought it was a great initiative. Now, we're not quite sure what that money will be spent on yet. Some worry that it'll be more in the the field of game publishing and, 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 and developers. But nevertheless, like this is sort of the beginning of a trend is sort of more younger politicians who've seen what esports can do for them, they'll be able to convince maybe those less familiar with the industry. I mean, the, the clearest example I can point to is um, uh, the city of Katowice in Poland, which every year hosts the Intel Extreme Masters event, which is a multi-game event series, predominantly Counter-Strike and StarCraft. And that whole thing began when a council member for the city basically emailed Michael Blizzaks or Carmack from ESL and said, hey, uh, we love what you guys do. Would you be interested in bringing an event to our city? Cut to, you know, this year, and we had you know ten thousand fans or so in the, in their Spodak Arena. Never mind how many fans actually came to the arena over the course of two weekends. It, it is you know the easily the one of the biggest esports events in the world. I've spoken to certain people, certain journalists in China, who say like there are literally cities in China that want to replicate the Katowice model. You're right. It's really put Katowice on the map, and it's surprising this small city in Poland that has become essentially an esports capital as a result of this interest in policy and and raising their hand to say, hey, you know, we'd love to have the community and host these types of events. Yeah, uh, the prime minister of Poland himself was at the most recent events. So at one point, I was walking around and this army of suits just came <laughs> strolling past, and I was like, oh, what was going on? And then someone said, yeah, that's the prime minister of Poland. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, quite a bit of esports news recently. One of the biggest trends that we've seen in the past few weeks is a number of teams raising additional capital. You had Genji out of Korea raised an additional $46 million. Uh, Liquid has raised $21.5 million. I've spoke with uh, PopDog COO Josh Schwartz recently, and he was skeptical about the impact of such venture investments in esports teams, but curious to get your take on the subject. What do you think about these types of investments? I could certainly see his his skepticism. I think it's 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 quite important to take both of those raises individually. So let's start with Team Liquid because it's not actually money raised by Team Liquid themselves. It's raised by their parents' uh, group, Axiomatic, which is kind of like this dream team of uh, sports investors. You have Peter Guber, Ted Leonosis, Jeff Vinnick, uh, Michael Jordan recently joined the, there. And on top of obviously being the parent company of Team Liquid, they've invested in Epic Games, which of course is the developer and publisher of Fortnite. They've also um, invested in a, in a few sort of smaller esports startups. Gamer Sensei is a coaching app. Uh, Super League Gaming does amateur gaming. They were also an investor in uh, Bigcraft's uh, first uh, venture fund. Uh, Bigcraft is um, it's the first kind of esports focused venture fund. The the most recent fund was actually uncovered as an SEC filing. So we don't really know what they raised this particular money for. It might be Team Liquid related. It could be something completely different. But even then, the, the company itself raised, I think, believe more than 50 million last year. I mean, what I find very interesting about Team Liquid as, as an organization is that it's one of the few esports companies at its height that has not obviously become part of the Overwatch League and what's happened there. They've, they've, they've kind of remained more committed to the franchise-style initiative of uh, the League of Legends Championship Series. Uh, they're still heavy into Counter-Strike. Um, but then, they, of course, they were kind of the, f- the first of the sort of the big teams to also build their own Los Angeles training center. So 
I mean, we'll have to wait for the coming months to see exactly what that particular raise was kind of targeted at. Genji is, 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 is an interesting one because it was 46 million. That's the second highest disclosed uh, funding round for an esports team next to Cloud9, which raised 50 million. And um, Genji is is a much younger brand compared to Team Liquid, um, and it's it was founded as sort of like this collection of um, entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. Uh, the the former the founder and former CEO Kevin Shu was um, he founded a, a game company called Kabam. Uh, their current CEO uh, Arnold Ho, which is a good friend of mine, he's um, he he's worked at Google and Goldman Sachs, and uh, they they acquired a number of uh, highly accomplished esports teams and developed a brand. Which I, I think the concept is still very interesting. Is that it's as you said. It's a Korean company, although the company itself is based in the U.S. Their idea is to take these Korean esports players and develop them into global brands. Because I think, as mo- even most people who aren't fully engaged esports have some awareness that Korea is, you know, culturally one of the most richly developed esports regions. I mean, sixty percent of the Overwatch League player base is from Korea. SK Telecom T1 have won the League of Legends World Championship uh, three times. Um, they have some of the best player bases, and of course, their players are demigod celebrities in that country on the, on the on par with uh, K-pop stars. And whilst we know a lot of those players internationally, like Faker from uh, League of Legends is, is one of the big ones, they the companies that own those teams have never felt the need to develop them into global brands. Partly because the companies that own these teams are uh, it's the likes of Samsung or SK Telecom. KT, like more of these kind of technology companies that simply have the teams as a marketing extension of themselves. So now to actually see a company like Genji come in and actually want to um, develop these Korean teams into into actually international brands is really interesting. And this this funding is kind of like the next step in that. And I'm really interested to see what a section of that money will go to. For example, there's one theory that um, the League of Legends uh, Champions Korea League will go through the same franchise-style initiative that the North American and European and Chinese leagues have all gone through. So actually, you know, remove relegation promotion, ask for a buy-in fee, and start to monetize and become more self-sustaining than it actually has been in previous years. Very excited to see that happen. As you said, you know, there's a lot of uh, growth and exciting things happening in the team space. Unfortunately, we had a bit of disappointing news last week as well. Rick Fox announced his intention to leave the Echo Fox organization as a result of a shareholder from Vision Esports using racist hate speech, both in person and over email. What do you think of the community's response to this event and what steps still need to be taken to ensure a safe and inclusive environment for everyone in the esports space? The one thing that really hit me was a lot of people were saying that they absolutely do not want to see Rick Fox leave the space. He's been, you know, a really good ambassador for the industry since he came in. He had, a, you know, his his story that he bonded through his son, through his son's, you know, love of video games and his son sort of playing as a, a college player helped him see that this was a burgeoning industry. And of course, I think that I think that's the harshest part of it is that, you know, Echo Fox was his brand. And so the idea that he would now sell it is um, we don't know all the details of, of what exactly happened behind the scenes, but it it's you can only imagine if, if this is the course of action he's decided to take. But um, yeah, again, the 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 outcry from the community for him to to stay and to to find and you know find somewhere else in the industry where he can continue his good work it was uh, to me very very touching you know again it does highlight the the unfortunate thing that um you know, obviously obviously what happens on kind of like the you know, on the business level between adults is is rather different to maybe what might happen at a tournament if there is this kind of behavior but i think the the message is always clear like it has no place in this industry we want esports to develop as a as a as a welcoming community and for the most part it is if if i take um 
you know, people from outside the industry to events, let them walk around and see what it's like. The one thing they always say is like, these, these are some of the friendliest people I've ever met. And they're so welcoming to you, regardless of who you are and, and how much you really know about games, you know? And so, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'm interested to see what, see what, what comes of this. Um, but yeah, it was certainly sad news to hear. And, and, and I'm definitely on the, on the fence that I hope Rick Fox, um, you know, finds a new venture in esports that, that lets him continue to do the good work that he's been doing. I'd like to get your take on the Battle Royale phenomenon. PUBG and Apex Legends have taken a very traditional approach to tournaments, inviting the best players to compete for the top prize, whereas Fortnite has taken a more casual approach, inviting bigger personalities to tournaments rather than the most intense competitors. What do you think of those two different approaches and, and which will ultimately be more successful? It depends really what the, what the, what the goal is for both of them. PUBG's more traditional esports model has still perhaps got a long way to go because it's never really been able to um to know hit the viewership heights or the kind of the hype that i think a lot more of longer esports titles have PUBG and fortnite are interesting because they're the first new esports to develop since esports kind of reached the height that it that it had right now that we know that okay if you make a competitive multiplayer game that resonates really well with the audience that obviously a lot of people will take to twitch and stream there's almost this need to create an esport out of it. Otherwise, the, the community will simply create one on their own. You can see that with Apex Legends as a great example. Like that game had barely been out for, I think, a week or so before professional teams were signing players. So if we, if we take them individually, PUBG, I, I'm certainly skeptical of the league model it's built. The whole idea is that there is a set of global leagues that will culminate with a number of international events per year. Uh, we just had the kind of first one of the season, which was the Face It Invitational. And for the most part, it seemed to do quite well. There was uh, there was one sort of viral video from it that came out of one player basically defeating an entire squad with a single grenade. So that's the kind of classic esports moment that that um, I think most titles would would really kill for. And I mean, PUBG has been able to achieve that. Whether it can you know continue on as a sustainable esport is kind of still up in the air. Uh, Fortnite is is really different because obviously Fortnite has this huge hype around it because they have this World Cup coming up with $30 million total prize pool. That's higher than any esports tournament in the world. But you're talking about a title that still releases patches on the day of a massive tournament, meaning this massive game imbalance that has people, you know, disconnecting or uh, having issues during these massive tournaments and, you know, losing out on huge amounts of prize money. And as a whole, Fortnite is still a game that favors more the individual streamer, the influencer than the competitive player. This is something that a, a good friend of mine in the industry has said, and I, I stick kind of stick by it, I kind of steal his idea, is that he doesn't consider any game an esport unless it's been around for three years. And I'm kind of warming up to that idea as well, because then you get to see whether a game can actually outlast its hype, whether it is able to survive with an organic community around it. And um, ultimately, whether it can survive when the publisher, for whatever reason, decides not to support it anymore. Uh, and we've seen that with certain games going under. The most recent example is Heroes of the Storm, uh, this um, MOBA t- title from Activision Blizzard. You know, for several years, Activision Blizzard tried to run a full professional league around this game. And at some point, for you know the reasons they felt were justified, they they pulled the support from it. And once they pulled the professional tournament, there was no grassroots underground scene to carry it on. And I think with the the Battle Royale games, obviously a very different style of game, it's going to be interesting to see whether, you know, for example, people would still want to hold Fortnite tournaments if it weren't for Epic. And whether Epic will take a page out of more traditional esports tournaments or continue to do more of their kind of 
uh, streamer invite uh, style that we've seen. It's a good barometer. I like the fact that you know it, it's dependent on organic support from the community to organize and participate in esports events rather than being propped up by the publisher interest or advertiser interest for a new game that might be hyped. But really, a true esports title has that longevity, right? Like we've seen with Counter Strike, like we've seen with Dota and League. At this point, you know, uh, much better performing titles over the long term. Absolutely. I mean, the one question you tend to get asked a lot, whatever role you take in esports, is what will be the next big game? And it, and it's interesting to try and dissect what people mean by next big game because it could be something like Fortnite, which is in you know by all accounts a pop culture phenomenon, a hugely successful on a financial level, but uh, in terms of it being a big, you know, the great next big esport, you know, does it also have to last ten years like Counter Strike and 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 soon League of Legends will have? It, and as you said, like there's this there's this fine line that has to be played when a new game comes out of how much should the publisher allow the community to raise the profile of that game and how much support should it give? Because the problem is is that if a publisher just you know throws out prize money, essentially locks out any kind of um, of community run tournaments you can actually kind of stifle your game you can kind of choke it but at the same time i think a lot of people complained with pubg in particular that it was too slow that they didn't give the the, the massive resources they would need to sustain an esports community fast enough and so you bet you know you had, you had teams that quickly signed rosters and then would you know throw them out maybe uh, six months down the line and i think pubg and fortnite and to an extent apex legends would be great test cases for any future games that come out in terms of which approach works best if you want your game to not just succeed as a product, but also to succeed as an esport. You talked at the top of the episode about non-endemic brands needing to be authentic in gaining support for uh, the community when trying to advertise to them. An example of that happened last week. We've got Anheuser-Busch recently named the official beer sponsor of the Overwatch League, now joining Intel, T-Mobile, Coca-Cola, Toyota, State Farm, and Omen as kind of the other major sponsors. Do you see that as a signal that major brands are recognizing the marketing potential of reaching an esports audience? And are these big title sponsors doing that in an authentic and engaging way? The quick answer is yes. Um, the longer answer obviously depends on uh, what league you're talking about and what they're doing. So in the case of the Overwatch League, which you know for, mo- for the most part is an entirely new experiment in esports in creating a huge franchise league in the style of uh North American football or Major League Baseball, it, it, it functions very much like a traditional sports um, sports league more than than kind of the League of Legends circuits do. And at its helm is Activision Blizzard Esports Leagues, which again is this kind of dream team of former sports executives from the likes of the NBA and and also from NBC, who are you know able to sign these rather you know brands that have had for some of them had never actually engaged in esports before, and now they're supporting you know this huge franchise league with the overwatch league like i haven't really seen anything from that league yet that that is entirely new or different in terms of sponsorship activation nothing that is you know nothing that fans would reject but um obviously they they've seen the hype created around this particular league they like the fact that obviously it's been broadcast on uh, uh mainstream television on abc and at espn and i think in the particular case of bud light it's it's obviously very interesting to us that a uh, a beer brand would be would be interested because they kind of now realize okay the audience watching this isn't isn't just kids which is the typical stereotype they see it's actually you know it's an audience that that is of drinking age interestingly the same week that, that was announced the league of legends pro league in china also signed a beer sponsor um 
to me, what I would I would like to see is on the sort of the smaller tournaments. I'd be much interested to see, let's say, and I say this as a as a big craft beer fan. I would like to see more craft beer, beer brands like get engaged on the on smaller tournament circuits. I've seen a couple, but um, that to me is a is a better example of appealing to uh, because again, Bud Light is a very it's a mainstream beer brand, um, whereas something that's more core has a more passionate fan base behind it. It's very much in line with what I would see on the kind of the kind of more traditional esports level. And as we start to see more local-based esports competitions, you've got you know what's happening at the college level, what's happening at the high school level. Maybe it opens up broader sponsorship opportunities for those niche brands, right? The craft beers, more local advertising. I think those media opportunities will be generated as the space and as the esports uh, ad inventory continues to grow. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, one thing I can say for the Overwatch League is, um, you know, the the week we're recording this, we just had the um, Dallas Fuel homestand weekend, which Bud Light was the title sponsor of. This is the first game in the Overwatch League that went from Blizzard's Los Angeles studio to a home venue set up by the Dallas Fuel. And the interesting part of all of that was... Um, Oh, it was a chance for league sponsors to activate. So we're talking like T-Mobile and Omen by HP. But you also saw a lot of not just sponsors of the local of Dallas Field themselves, but actual local sponsors, the local University of Texas. Uh, I think it was a local law firm, a delivery service. That to me is also one of the big emerging trends right now is um, the more opportunities for local sponsors. Well, I was recently at the um, League of Legends European Championship in Rotterdam. And they had a, a really interesting activation with a blood bank in the Netherlands called Sanquin. The whole idea was that um, the Dutch uh, attendees go and they actually like get a blood test. They get a free in-game champion who's kind of themed around blood. Uh, so it's, it's a nice kind of you know synergy with the game. But of course, it's, it's a brand that only the local audience will know and will get any kind of uh, attachment to. What's coming next, Graham? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the esports space, what would they be? So in terms of that, that kind of one game to follow, I can't say that this will be the next big thing in esports, but it's a game that I think a lot of people are, are looking at quite intently right now. And that is, it's a game called Dota Auto Chess. This originated out of China, a very small studio there basically took Dota 2, the game, and, and created a new modified version of it that... Well, to be honest, it's not like Dota or Chess. The, the name is a bit confusing. It's more, it's very similar to Mahjong, if you ever played that. And I mean, it is it is extremely blown up. I mean, we're talking more than, I think, I haven't even checked the player count recently, but we're talking, we're almost to the point of, I think, a million players. And now they're building a uh, mobile version of it. And, and there are tournaments being built off of it. I think Twitch have run a small event. Uh, there's a couple of Chinese tournament organizers building events around it. It may or may not work as an esport. Never assume that a game's popular, it will, su- it will suddenly be able to build a competitive community. But what makes Auto Chess really interesting is that it's it's a game that was brought to the top by the community. This is how you know um, Dota 2 originally became popular when it was a modified uh, version of Warcraft 3. This is how Counter-Strike became popular. It was a modification of, uh, of Half-Life. We haven't seen a game like that for quite a while. I think PUBG was sort of the last game of that kind of type. Uh, so I, I'm really excited for that one. I, I'm definitely excited to see what's going on in terms of pop culture in esports. That's, that's a broad topic, but to kind of nail it down, I have this prediction, for example, that by the end of the year, nearly every major esports brand will have an apparel partner if they don't own their own apparel brand themselves, which is the case for a lot of teams. In the past, you know, quarter of this year, we've seen lots, uh, you know, lots of traditional sports companies and, and clothing brands such as Puma. 
uh, Nike um, get hugely involved in esports, either sponsoring teams or sponsoring leagues. And teams are really experimenting with what they can do in terms of what does the professional esports player look like when they're on stage? Do they have an athletic look? Do they have a, a street style look? I, I think that space is, is, is really exploding. And with that also comes, you know, what music can we promote through this medium? You've seen a lot of really interesting things. Universal Music partnered with ESL to create their own record label, basically provide the soundtrack for their events, provide live performances. Riot Games built an entire virtual band called KDA, which performed at the World Championship, released a song, something like thirty over 30 million views on YouTube, insane amount of, of attention. And of course, it's it's partly a marketing tool because it sells, um, it sells uh, items based on those characters in the game. So there's this point now where esports has kind of reached mainstream and it's become a pop culture phenomenon and so we're seeing more companies experiment with what they can do with it those are kind of two positive aspects but there is also the um the view of a few people now that esports will be going through some kind of market correction or as one friend of mine call it a squeeze the esports squeeze because we saw you know mass investment through the last two years partly brought on through these franchise style initiatives you know these leagues that are requiring you know, from $10 million to up to $60 million for entry, bringing a lot of traditional sports companies. And already we're starting to see some, you know, though no, none have quite come forward publicly yet. There's been reports of certain companies looking to, you know, sell their shares and teams, um, you know, exit these investments. And on the one hand, it may be because the league properties they bought into did not meet certain revenue targets. In other cases, I think they were expecting more short-term growth than was, than was reasonable. I mean, you saw a lot of teams with quite astonishing valuations. But uh, that's that's. I think this is the thing for any new fast-growing industry is uh, it, it, you start to see more companies kind of go through that initial test, and you'll see those that kind of survive it for the long term. I mean, for me certainly, I'm you know I've, I've staked my career on esports. I, I think it will be one of the biggest segments in the entertainment industry. But um, it's gone through. It's gone through some tough times before. There are there are certain league properties, you know, five almost ten years ago that were the biggest at their time and are now completely defunct. Um, it's gone through these cycles before. We're hoping to, to produce some content in the next few months, actually, on our, on the Esports Observer that, that kind of follows this particular topic. Yeah, definitely this year will will bring a lot of firsts and 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 new milestones for esports, but it will probably bring a few uh, sour notes than we saw in the last two years. I think you're right. I've been hearing from a few other folks as well that the exuberance of any new industry brings heightened valuations and perhaps an opportunity for there to be a bit of a correction, which is natural, right? And oftentimes a healthy uh, culling or, or uh, resetting of expectations. And so would certainly see that you know coming in the next few months. But of course, long on esports as well, I think the overall opportunity is, is great. The audience is real. The enthusiasm is there. Big game publishers are doing better than ever. So certainly not a strike against the industry overall, just something that, that naturally happens as a new space grows rapidly. Absolutely. And, and again, like, like you said, this is a really engaged young audience, but it's, it's, a, it's a more difficult audience to monetize than, um, than, than, than usual. Because as I, as I said much earlier, the media landscape that exists in traditional sports just isn't there yet. And that's a huge, and that is, and to be fair, media rights are one of the, the revenue streams that are expected to rise a lot more as the years go on. But at the same time, you know, there's several other avenues in terms of like, you know, ticket sales or, um, uh, you know, concessions that initiatives like the Overwatch League are trying to, to, to make standard for the industry. But it will take time for them to develop, and there's no guarantee that they will develop in, in quite the same way as they did in traditional sports. So 
the the industry is is still in that exploratory phase and i think maybe there are just certain certain companies that jump the gun a little too quickly but yeah we'll see how, how it works out if you were starting a business in the esports space today what would you do i think i would probably like to um develop more on the kind of ancillary content side the one thing that it, that if you get into esports you know esports has so many different commentators so many people with with great opinions and and i mean you can find so many great like one-man shows on on youtube and and twitch but it would be nice for something to come along that that kind of professionalize it a bit more right now with some of the leagues they're experimenting more with taking their commentators and allowing them to build more personal brands around themselves i think whether you're a journalist or uh any kind of personality there's no avenue right now to kind of build discussion programs and talks amongst yourselves and really make those quite big so i mean my, my thing is like uh for example someone who hosts a, a podcast i would like to see you know more innovation on the on the esports podcast space there's a plenty of like talk shows but there's nothing in terms of the way of like these kind of documentary feature style podcasts that are that i know as a as a regular podcast and aficionado that i love listening to it's something that we may explore in the esports observer i, I mean personally for, for, for me right now i guess i'm, I'm still Still quite committed to my role as a, as a journalist, podcast host, as a speaker that um, I'm not really thinking right now where those other opportunities lie. What we're seeing is that there is a lot of opportunity in many parts of the esports space. And it's not just around building a team or you know launching a franchise. There's opportunities around technology. There's opportunities around apparel, merchandising, as you mentioned, media rights, ad advertising and influencer marketing. Uh, the space is growing so quickly that there's this whole ecosystem built around it that's creating opportunities for entrepreneurs and innovators in every sector of the esports space it's almost like you could take any job and just throw esports in front of it and and you build a new role and uh, i mean some of the, some of the, some of those kind of raise an eyebrow but uh there's certainly like you you can try it and it always adds kind of a different twist on on a on a pre-existing role or business Graham, where can people find out more about you and more about the work that the esports observer does the the articles that you publish for the esports observer where can they follow that Sure. So just in case, you know, anyone uh, wasn't familiar when, when we started the show, the Esports Observer is, uh, is, is, is a website that provides esports business news and insights. We're kind of predominantly front facing through our, our news publication. We cover all the B2B sectors of the industry, investments, sponsorships, viewership analysis, market analysis. And uh, we also do events. We, we actually recently hosted our second conference in, in Berlin uh, last month. And so if you want to kind of get an idea of what we do, you know, read what I do, listen to our podcast I host. Uh, you can find us at esportsobserver.com. We're also on uh, social media. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, we're on Twitter under the handle esportsobserved. And uh, I think that would probably be, be the best starting place. Yeah, and I would echo that. For those listening, the Esports Observer is my go-to destination for news about the industry. Their events are terrific. Make sure to check out the podcast that Graham puts on. It's a really in-depth look at the news that's happening in the ecosystem, but also great interviews with some of the thought leaders who are very active in the space. So encourage uh, those who want to learn more to check out all of those great resources. And if you just want to get in touch with me personally, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Graham underscore underscore uh, Ashton. And uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Awesome. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show. As a fellow esports enthusiast, it's awesome to get a chance to talk with you about your experience and just the in-depth analysis that you provide uh, about the space. It's, it's incredible to see and really appreciate you taking the time to share your perspective. I appreciate you welcoming me on. I really value the chance to speak. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.